Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome Chad Ray. He's an artist, he's a creative director, and an educator. He has an amazing story about starting off an agency life in the U.S., going overseas, and seeing a whole new way to approach clients. He's going to provide a lot of insights on starting your own business and the difference between personal art and client work. Let's talk to Chad. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. All right, Chad Ray, thank you so much for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. I was referred to you by our good friend, Greg Neal, who I used to work with. He just joined me a few weeks back, and it's a pleasure to meet you and hear your story, and I'm excited to share it with our audience today. Awesome. Great to be here, John. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. So we had a call the other day. You gave me an overview of your career. Super interesting stuff. So why don't you tell the audience who you are and give us a synopsis of what you've been doing over the years that has brought you to where you are today? Sure. Well, I got my start as a copywriter at the Richards Group back in like 94, I think it was. And that was when Grant Richards, Stan's son, was working as a creative director. He was paired up with Todd Tilford. And I was fortunate enough to be in that group, which sort of, you know, splintered off and started Pyro, which was sort of like an agency within an agency. Cool. And we were doing, you know, lots of youth and entertainment type clients, you know, Hummer, Doc Martens, a ton of computer or yeah, computer video games like id Software, you know, which was Doom and Quake, you know, those sorts of things. And um, yeah, I spent about six years there. Then I went to Mother and London, which was a new agency at the time. I think I was hired at 36 and spent two and a half years in London before I went to Amsterdam, worked at Kessels Kramer. And I think it was there about two and a half years. And I think it was a combination of working both at Mother and at Kessels Kramer where I was experienced a completely different way of working than I was used to in the US. And it really inspired me to move back to the States and set up my own shop in Los Angeles. And that agency was called 86 The Onions had a good run about five and a half years, but single-handedly ran that, that shop and got completely burned out. So I think it was the second time I'd been burned out in this industry and took about a year off. Then I got a call from White and Kennedy, moved to Portland to be the creative director of Target, had a short stint there, went to freelance and did you know, a bunch of consulting work and about six years later, decided I wanted to teach, actually teach again. When I had my agency in LA, I was teaching at Art Center College of Design and, and enjoyed that. So heard there was a position open at University of Texas here in Austin. So I applied for that gig, got that gig, and that's what brought me to Austin about five years ago. And I think about eight months ago, I, I um, started working with Deco, which is a small agency here in Austin. I worked part-time as a creative director for them. And the other half of the time, I'm a, a full-time uh, artist. 
Super cool. So you've basically been everywhere. I mean, not only have you been everywhere through the uh, marketing <laughs> agency world, but you've been all over the globe doing this. But one thing that I picked out of that summary of your career is a different way of working that you discovered in Europe that you wanted to replicate here uh, in LA. What was some of those things that was different? Well, this, I mean, it, it sounds super dated now because it's, it's commonplace, but, you know, in the U.S., it was very much about, you know, titles and disciplines. And if you're a writer, you know, you stick to the words. And if you're an art director, you do the, the pictures, you know. And, you know, you had all these silos within agencies. So you had, you know, the, the um, account team determining what it is you're trying to say, the media department, where to say it. And then, you know, that's then given to the, the, the creative team to, you know, work within those parameters. Whereas uh, at Mother, you know, when they first started, they started with a, a kitchen table and six founders. Hmm. And as they grew, there were more chairs and more tables added to this, this table. And I think when I left there after two and a half years, this table was like 172 feet long. And, you know, using the table as a metaphor, the idea was really about problem solving. Let's put a problem in the center of this table. Let's not worry about titles or disciplines. Yeah. Let's all try to collectively solve this problem. And if an art director had a great headline or a strategist had a good headline or the client for that matter, like, hey, let's invite the client. You know, there's no sort of separation between agency and client. Mm. Uh, and, and it was also like you weren't starting with a media deliver, uh, deliverable, you know, which in the U.S. that was already baked into the brief, like make us a TV commercial, make us, you know, a radio campaign using two outdated, you know, media. But <laughs> yeah, uh, in Europe, it was much more about like come up with the, you know, most relevant solution to the problem and, and then figure out the most creative way to distribute it or the most relevant way to distribute it. So anything was possible. It was like, you know, I remember working with Harvey Nichols, which was, you know, like a fashion department store there that's known for its window displays. And we were, we were going to drop stuff out of airplanes. You know, we were like, Hey, can we, really, <laughs> London, we were going to like drop, you know, pamphlets. Oh, wow. Uh, over the city and we found out that that was illegal but that what was illegal is you could drop uh, flower petals you know but the, my point is it was like our job was to come up with the most creative idea possible and yeah. then we had this support team you know production staff that their job was to just go and, and make sure that it got done you know which it, it was kind of a a switch from like I don't know, living in this world of like hearing no all the time, like, oh, we can't do that. That's too expensive. Or what about, you know, yeah. security? Where there was just like, anything's possible. Wow. That's really empowering, I would imagine. It, it was the, yeah, it was like, again, as a creative, it was the most like inspiring place I could have ever imagined being, you know, and, and it was at the time where just what you were calling deliverables, you know, um, and, and saying like, oh, a book is advertising. We can make a book. Oh, we can do an art exhibition. We, you know, like that's advertising, you know, we can make a record. Like I was making, I did a punk record, you know, as our agency Christmas card one year. <laughs> that's sick. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's just, it was, it was just a really great inspiring place and being able to collaborate with so many different cultures, you know, and like working next to a Swede and a German and an Egyptian and all coming together with these, these very unique points of view and experiences and finding what those commonalities are, you know, and, and just, and distilling the idea down to its like simplest universal truth that everybody could understand, you know, whether it was a European campaign or a global campaign or a non English speaking campaign. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. That's really interesting. You make a great point there about the different cultures, the different perspectives, and that's pretty unique to Europe opposed to the U.S., where you have within a small proximity, you have a lot of very distinct cultures. In fact, uh, one of the companies I work with is PRG, and they're the, the world's largest global entertainment provider. So I have every other week, I do an EMEA call with my counterparts in Germany. And we were actually having this uh, very same discussion. So do you think that what happened there, the different way of working with the different perspectives, the unique way of looking at the problem and how can we solve it versus it's a commercial, it's a CD, etc. Was that unique to the culture of Europe? Was that what enabled that? Or were there other reasons that brought that to fruition? I, I think I would credit it to the founders of mother. Mm. I mean, they were really the, the pioneers, I think even within, you know, other agencies within London, you know, I think Crispin Porter gets credit for taking that type of thinking here in the States, you know, yeah. but the reality is mother and Kessels Kramer, they were the forefathers of that media agnostic approach to problem solving. Hmm. They were doing it way before Kristen was. So uh, I'm curious, there's there's a lot of benefits, obvious, from creative benefits. Did that make it really hard to scope out work or to come up with a budget for a client because it was less hmm. obvious what the Andrews, the scope was? Because, you know, well, when I started my agency, you know, in Los Angeles, it was, it was based on a lot of the principles that I learned at Mother and the process for sure. And I used to charge clients a concept fee, essentially. Okay. So it was like, you're going to pay us to turn on the proverbial faucet and all the ideas that come out during that time will certainly vet. But you know, if you ask us to make a TV commercial, we'll make a TV commercial. If you ask us to solve a problem, we're going to come up with a million different ways, you know? And so at that time, you know, it was truly sort of 360, you know, mm. integrate marketing. So it was like, okay, if this were executed in, in video, what would it be? If it were executed in radio, what would it be? If it was direct mail, if it was an experience and you go to the client and you're just like, this is how big of an idea it is. Look at all the, the things that we can do here, get them really excited. Then from there, you can sort of like pick and choose. That makes sense. Create the media plan based on that, as opposed to like, you know, we're allocating X to video and this to that. So, and oftentimes also that I would find that they would find money to produce things <laughs> that they're passionate um, about <laughs> that are yeah, good ideas. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it's like I remember one time we were working for a fashion retailer and they had a very specific budget for a magazine campaign. 
And we were like, okay, sure, we could do a magazine campaign, but what if we took that budget? Like, we didn't think magazine campaigns were going to solve the problem. Mm. Instead, we were like, you know, you need to do all these other things. And so you're going to get, you know, a multitude of, of deliverables for the same price as, you know, a magazine campaign, and it's going to serve you better. And I remember the, the, the guys saying, when we were doing our presentation, the client said, you know, if I'm doing a backflip, I'll, I'll write you a check. Hmm. And at the end of the presentation, I said, well, what do you think? And he says, I'm doing a backflip. Nice. So got out his check and like paid for, you know, much more than he had budgeted for. And I, I think a lot of that is probably education with the client, right? Is opening up their mind to thinking beyond, yeah, you just have your budgets and silos and you're used to this, that, and the other, but hey, we know you have this money over here that's not being effective or isn't doing much for you. If we took that and we put it over here towards <laughs> this punk album, this is actually going to work. And that way you can stay within budget and still fund something that is going to be much more effective for you if you think outside of the box. I mean, that's the theory. You know, I, I think the advertising industry has changed. You know, it's gone through so many different waves and iterations and you, you know i think we're at a place now where clients are are like oh well that's great really we just want a magazine campaign like you know you're giving right. us all this or <laughs> yeah or you know internally i also understand it that you know marketing budgets are approved you know a year in advance right you know so they have to be able to explain what that's going to be spent on you know but I think there's there's definitely some some ways around it. Yeah, and I would say the the opportunity to do that sometimes versus never, right? I'm sure you're not saying, yeah, every time we had a client come to us, we put them in a hot air balloon and dumped flowers all over the city or the equivalent to that. You know, I'm sure sometimes you're just doing you're doing the song, you're doing the campaign, you're doing the the YouTube pre-roll in today's world, right? So it's not that you have to be one or the other. It's like, no, let's look for some opportunities with some super cool open-minded clients where we can not only effectively market a product, but shift culture, which I think is something that ultimately does the best job of marketing products. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's two things. One is this idea of, you know, creating culture, you know, as, a, as opposed to like, appropriating it, you know, yeah. and, you know, I think in my experience in the U S it was very much about like, you know, appealing to the advertising trade and winning awards, you know, where <laughs> yes. I think in Europe, we were, we were being hired as an agency to do like editorial pieces for like dazed and confused magazine, or when I was in mm. um, the Netherlands, like Dutch magazine, like we were actually creating you know, in these sort of pop culture publications and we were being covered, like we were having feature stories and our advertising was being commented from, from people I thought meant more than the ad, ad press. You know what I mean? Like that's the ultimate test is if you can become a part of the vernacular, you know, of, of culture. Wyden Kennedy is very good at at doing that, you know, but the other thing I was going to say is, and this is also pretty common these days, but you know, the notion of like having like the equivalent of a, of a tear sheet session with clients, 
where it was like, let's present the idea, not the work, not the execution of it, but let's present the idea. And once you buy off on the idea, when we come back with the execution, like it all supports that central thought strategy mm. that you already bought off on, you know? And so we would hear a lot more yeses as opposed to going into a pitch. And I mean, I've been in pitches where they would show like eight campaigns, right. you know, and they'd be like, this is this, this is the really, you know, out there stuff. And this is the, you know, whatever. And then the client would always pick the middle of the ground or they would be like, I don't like the photography. I don't like that color. I don't like, you know, the word. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's about the idea. Don't worry about all that stuff. We can change that later by removing all that and just getting to the essence of what the idea is. Yeah. Then it's like, when you, again, when you start showing the stuff, it's like, okay, cool. We can change that stuff, but it's all laddering up to that bigger idea. And that's the most important thing. Well, I think one of the keys to doing dope work <laughs> is to getting a client to let you do it, right? And to convince them that it's worth either trying something new, being creative, thinking outside of the box versus, you know, every marketing director across the country and at every brand, they've, there's many things they'll do safely that everybody's been done before. But I think you make a great point there as far as when you agree on hey, this is what we want people to feel when they experience your brand, right? What do we want people's emotions to be? What do we want their action to be? And then when you start there and you work your way back, you can probably get them to agree to something that is better for them and cooler for you to work on than if you start on the other end with the specific execution of the concepts, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. It's a little bit of handholding, but making it less about sort of the, yeah, the specific execution and more about the insights, you know, and, and, and building that bridge between like, it's kind of like an if then scenario, you know, like if, if your brand is this and consumers think this, therefore this, yeah. and if they follow that logic without you know, being distracted with, yeah, a photo or a color or a headline or, you know, those sort of things, then that's like, that's the sort of like business marketing side of things that they really care about. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. So when you learned all these things and you had your mind open to a different way of working and you then started your own business to apply this in the U.S., I can relate a little bit. I started my own business about eight, eight nine months ago. And so I'm going through experiencing some of these things for the first time. What was that like for you to go from employee, employee to entrepreneur and try to kind of build and facilitate this thing you experienced overseas? Um. You know, it's, I think it's a combination of like, you know, confidence or, or ego and naivety, you know, being naive. Sure. Um, and all I knew is that, you know, every place that I work, I've, every place that I've worked, I felt like I had reached the, the, the end of the like learning curve for me. Got it. You know, yeah. like, like there was no more upward movement or 
I wasn't able to do, you know, what I wanted to do or whatever. And so I wanted to move on. And so it was natural progression for me to kind of start my own thing. But I think like most people, they don't know what they're doing. You know, there is no sort of like manual for, I mean, there is, you know, I'm sure you can, you know, but I didn't have a business plan. I just knew that, you know, I knew how to um, market myself. You know, mother was really great looking at their their brand. I mean, even from the get-go, like, yeah. This was in the in the day when people would put their founders' names on the on the door. You know, now it's about coming up with like some sort of you know creative agency name or whatever. Right. But back then it was like mother was a brand to the point where they would remove individuals' names, you know, out of award shows and stuff. It was like we're all sort of a collective and it goes back to that idea that like you know, just because you're listed as a writer doesn't mean you wrote the thing, you know, or you had the idea or whatever. There's a bigger team behind this. So it just had mother on, on the listing. And we were doing self-promotion pieces, editorial, I think you would, would fall fit into that, but, and, and creating like, you know, this, this record, but we were doing so much self-promotion. And I think, again, that was a testament to mother, like building their brand, yeah. And treating mother as, as a brand or as, an, as important as any of the brands that were marketing, they were marketing, you know? And so when I set up my agency, I put 9% of profits. Don't ask me why 9%. I don't know, but I was putting 9% of profits into what I would call extracurricular activities, which I never wanted extracurricular activities. It's like, if you wanted to, to make a book or you wanted to, you know, have some sort of side project, like bring it in. This is what mother did, you know, like I published my first book working at mother, uh-huh. you know, and it had their name on it and they were able to use it to promote their brand, but I got a book out of it, you know? And yeah. so, so I was away from the U S for, for five years. Nobody in the U S knew who I was. I didn't have any clients to speak of. Like I didn't leave an agency and take a client with me. There wasn't an opportunity that like presented itself. I was just dumb enough to say, I want to, you know, move to California and set up shop. And I've got enough money from freelancing that, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stick it out for six months. And if I don't get a client, then I go back to working for somebody else, you know? And I started with one employee, me, Yep. You know, one client, 80, 60 onions. And within three months, you know, landed the first client, then another employee, another client, you know, and in five and a half years grew to, you know, a 12 person shop and, you know, working with Fuel TV, Target, Mountain Dew, Starbucks, Aquafina, fucking Technicolor, like wow. a bunch of, of really high profile clients that was really me just looking at brands going, I want to work for them and creating some piece of self-promotion and, and getting their attention, you know, and, and hopefully getting some work and then sort of supersizing clients, you know, with that work. Yeah. I have two questions with you about that. Uh, first one, how, you know, as a small shop, you know, you're going up against the Wyden Kennedys of the world how did you find yourself be able to get the attention or say you should work with me rather than this massive global agency? I know sometimes it's, Hey, we're more nimble. 
sometimes mm-hmm. you might just either you the owner or someone on your team might be a unicorn and say look you have access to for this person to to put yeah. their mind to your brand but what was it specifically that you did that was successful in winning over these big clients i think it was a couple of things one is you know it was in the name 8060 onions is really about like removing the layers and the formula you know the marketing formulas and you know, just doing business as usual. And so, you know, there was a reason for being, which was advertising, you know, and the way agencies operate is a certain way on, you know, the antidote to that. The other thing was, you know, our website, for example, wasn't an online brochure. It didn't have like, oh, here's our clients, here's our founders, here's our trademark process. You know, it was like, you know, it was the show versus say sort of model. Don't say you understand youth and entertainment culture, be a youth and entertainment brand. And so our website was this interactive experience that people could go and interact with all these sort of weird and strange games to the point it was mysterious enough that people would pick up the phone or send me an email wanting to know more information about us, you know, and- Interesting, yeah. So I think that and just being left of center and, and creating, you know, we sent out raw onions to potential clients with a letter explaining, you know, why layers and agencies are bad. And yeah, I had two, two responses that were like, do not ever, you know, send us anything again. They sat on our window seal and rotted and smell of our <laughs> office, you know, to other people going, this is exactly the kind of thinking that we want. You know, and so another thing that we did is, you know, I was doing a lot of cold calling and, excuse me, and people would say, oh, great, love the work, call us back in two months, call us back. And I was like, man, if I hear that line again, I'm going to jump out the window. (laughs) Yeah. And so I had this idea to create a zine that would go out every two months Mm. to our mailing list. And it was you know, it had everything from, we would, you know, just sort of like agency culture. It was, it would showcase some of our work, but indirectly. So rather than say, Hey, this is a, you know, a campaign that we did for this energy drink, we ordered a case and had our intern drink the whole case. And then we monitored his uh, heart rate. (laughs) We actually, we didn't do that because I sent an email asking for this case of, of energy drink from the client. And he basically just responded, I strongly advised against doing that. So that, that became our entry into the zine. No, but, no interns were injured in the making of this zine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we did all kinds of fun stuff like that. Well, what's interesting about your approach, I think, is, you know, there's a common term, plumber's faucet is always leaking, right? And so there's probably a lot of, in fact, I, I say that all the time. There's there's a lot of probably agencies that their website sucks, right? And what it sounds like your approach, rather than my faucet's leaking, is no, I've got the most badass faucet in the world. Check it out. You want me to do your plumbing? Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. I mean, it was it was really about let's let's not wait for the opportunity to create content on somebody else's behalf. Let's make what we want to make, you know? And again, this was at the time when this 360 integrated marketing was, was pretty new and novel in the U S. And so 
you know, trying to get a client to, to buy off on that without actually knowing exactly how it works. Cause they didn't have anything before it, um, to reference. And so, you know, it was like, because of that, like I created a record, an album, a music CD, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. using PlayStation two sounds. Mm-hmm. And then I did an anagram of PlayStation, which was spatial Tony. And I created this fake character spatial Tony, which was like a young Stephen Hawking character that only had use of his thumb. Okay. And he wrote this record using his thumb and created a, a, a movie trailer, you know, ran all these ads and, you know, did an integrated campaign for this, you know, wacky project just to get the attention of other brands to go like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Like we like that kind of thinking. Will you do that for us? That's cool because I think one of the struggles, especially when you're starting out, is I always say a case study is better than an idea. You know, it's easier to, rather than telling somebody, hey, we could do this thing, it's look at what I did here and I'd love to do it for you. Now, the challenge Mm -hmm. when you're a young, new company, you don't have any case studies yet, right? And then there's also the question of spec work because price is an indicator of quality. If you're doing a bunch of work for free, it's unlikely that you'll get paid. But I think what I'm getting from you here is if you are, if you don't yet have these case studies, you don't have this work with big brands, if you do work with your own brand, yeah, you might be, you're doing work for free, but you're investing in yourself and you're creating real case studies that people can actually respond to and then use that to show clients what you can do. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to, we're really good at marketing other brands, but we're shit at marketing our own brands. But if we looked at ourselves in the same way that we look at our clients and, you know, really understand what our core values are and what the tone and personality is and, and, Oh, you actually have to spend money on marketing. Who would have thought, you know? And so, you know, and if you're working with clients that have small budgets, the creative has to work harder, right? you know? So why not do the craziest, you know, untethered craziest idea that you can come up with for yourself because trying to convince somebody else to make that on their behalf, you know, is, is going to be challenging. So why not be your own, own client, make yourself the most important client, you know, allow yourself and your employees to work on the agency brand as much as they are, you know, the other brands and, you know, it worked for me. That's cool. Well, I have my second question here is around hiring. You talked about how you went from yourself to one person, another person, 12 people. Selfishly, I'm <laughs> I'm taking notes here. I want to learn from you here. I'm in a place where I'm at that place where it's like, okay, the first employee, who is that person? How do you strategically hire? I'm sure a lot of the audience is thinking a lot of the same things. Young agencies starting new companies. What is your advice for when you are that single solopreneur and adding that person, what needs to be thought about or considered? What what I go to in my mind is, okay, do I get the the unskilled person doesn't cost a lot that feels a little more safe that can just free me up to do all the other stuff? Or do I go with a top tier dude who's been doing this 15, 20 years? He's going to cost more, but that's somebody that is my same skill or greater or mm. both. What, what's your experience been? 
That's a really good question, and it's extremely difficult. I don't know if I ever solved it, you know, because it was always a challenge of, you know, who who we could afford. Yeah. I think the most important thing is finding evangelists, mm. people that believe in, in what you're trying to do, because those people, like myself, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, I made less money when I moved to London and I made less money again when I moved to Amsterdam. And so <laughs> when most people that entered the industry with me or around the time I did were like making more and more money, I was making less money, but I was more creatively fulfilled. I was going for the opportunity to basically fill my, my quiver, if you will, of, of experience Mm. Uh, that I could then <clears throat> cash in on, you know, later. And so I think the people, I was fortunate, you know, Peter Batanatum, he's, he's an amazing art director. He's a creative director with Honey currently. And he was, he worked at Pyro with me in Dallas. And I thought he was one of the best designers that I'd ever worked with. And he had moved to Los Angeles and he was, I really wanted to work with him again. And he sold me on LA hmm. as a, as a place to open up shop. And so fortunately he was, <clears throat> he was one of the um, first employees, also a Swedish art director that worked at mother was also living in Los Angeles at the time. So those two people I had worked with before and were so generous with their time and what I was able to pay them in the beginning, like I owe them so much, but I think it was just that plus teaching at art center. I had, I was able to cherry pick my students, there you, go. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I developed a relationship with the school and, but I think, you know, Kurt Souter, He's a mentor of mine. He, he founded Ground Zero. He was an executive creative director of, of Hal Reine. And he owns a social impact agency in Santa Monica now. Yeah, so Kirk said to me not long ago, you know, now that I'm kind of out of, you know, I'm not sort of like the center point anymore, or at least like I was when I had my agency. You know, he said it's better to be the, the flame than it is the moth. And what he meant by that was like, create, you know, don't chase after, you know, other people and trying to get them to come to you and convince them to come to you, create something that people want to be a part of. That's cool. And create this hub. And, and I didn't realize it, but I was like, fuck, that's what I had with 86 was we were this creative hub that like people would just show up. You know, like people would camp out in front of the agency. You know, there was a guy once that was busking in front of our agency saying like, you know, we'll work. Like, I think he would, I mean, I did actually had an account guy because we didn't, the other thing about 86 is it was all creatives. We didn't have strategists. Uh -oh. We didn't have. <laughs> Project uh, managers, account executives. <laughs> no, no, and I mean, the downside was that I became all of those things. Hmm. But also that was part of the learning that I learned at, at Mother and Kessel's Kramer, you know, it was you got to learn a lot of different sort of disciplines. And yeah. And so 
there was an account guy that wanted to work at, at the shop. And I was like, you know, we don't really have account managers, you know, it's clients have sort of direct access to, to the people creating the work. And he's like, I'll work for free. And like, I was like, yeah, I'll take you up on that. You know, let's, let's try it out and you know, we'll reevaluate. So all I'm really saying is if you, if you create a culture or a mission or, you know, a body of work that people really want to attach themselves to, they will come. And I certainly had some discussions with some senior level people because I was, again, I got burned out. This was part of the reason why I shut it down. But I got to a point where I was like, man, I really need some help. And now let's go after finding some partners. But all of these senior level people were like, I, I want 50%. And I'm like, man, I, I, for the last three years, I've been busting my balls and, you know, I can't do that. I can't, yeah. I just can't do that anymore. And so it was, it was challenging. You know, I think if I were to do it over, I would, you know, I would make everybody a, a partner. Mm. Like, you know, sort of like the Ben and Jerry's model or, or, you know, where everybody owns a stake in the company or at the very least, you know, the five people that you want to on your team from the beginning, the founding team, give them all, all a carrot. Skin in the game, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think something that's a big challenge is the majority of employees are employees and nothing more, right? You're the owner of this small agency and it's your life. You've put your life into it, your blood, sweat, and tears. And the people you hire are only there to get a paycheck. Yeah. And after five o'clock, they're gone. Before nine, they're not there yet. You know, they have this, you know, and an entrepreneur is a different type of a person than somebody who just works for somebody else. Not one is better than the other. They're just different. And I think what you're saying with creating something that people want to be a part of, you're, you're getting people who want to be more than just an employee. They want to be part of the culture. They want to feel ownership. And that's the way that you're going to get the best work out of everybody. Yeah. I mean, I think it could be potentially two things. The one is the, like my, I guess, you know, me as an employee, which is like, I want to go work here because I want to learn. And I know that I can take this to the next place. Like I might make less money here, but I, after two years, I'm going to have a killer portfolio and then somebody else is going to come and snatch me up for twice, twice the money kind of thing. Right. You know, and I think good shops struggle with that. Like people go to Crispin, people go to Wyden Kennedy, mm-hmm. you know, only stay for a couple of years because they want that old spice campaign or the Nike campaign. And then, then it's like, you can get a job anywhere, you know, pretty much anywhere. Right. You can rent a ticket. So, there's definitely that like people who are ambitious and have a vision for their career trajectory, you know, yeah. whether you want to be a creative director or own your own shop, you know, it was very clear to me at a young age that that's what I wanted to do. And so that's the path that I follow. But the other thing, when I think you're talking about, <clears throat> yeah, why am I doing this? Why am I working 14 hour days for somebody else? You know, when, if I have skin in the game that, now I know that like, oh, 
I'm being groomed or within five years or 10 years, I can actually be a creative director here or I can be management, you know, and, and, and I actually have a voice in the decision making process. You know, I think, yeah, who wouldn't want that, you know, but I also think there's other people that just don't have a passion for it that end up in these careers that will go home at five and, yeah, they could care less really about, you know, the outcome of the, of the or the work or right. if they're going to 10 years or, you know, or not. Right. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your, your personal work. You were sharing with me the other day. You went through, I think it was 100 days of, was it 172 paintings that you did in 100 days? Yeah. Yeah. So about four and a half years ago, I guess. Well, I guess I should say when I was in Dallas, you know, this was probably 25 years ago, I had bought some raw canvas and hung it in, in my garage and painted some abstract painting thinking like, oh, I want to be a painter. Painted two paintings. One of them was shit. The other one I thought was pretty good. I rolled it up in a tube because I had a small apartment. There was no place to hang it. It was about seven feet by five feet. It went in a tube and it traveled the world with me until I moved to Austin. Mm. When I finally had the wall space and a home I bought to, to hang this, this abstract painting, which I did and just kind of told the story on Instagram, you know, with a picture and an artist friend of mine said, did you paint that? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you need to buy more paint. <laughs> you know, or like you need painting kind of thing. And so I went to the local art store, bought a bunch of paint and canvas. And this was right around the time, you know, Trump was campaigning for, for the election. Yeah. And I was feeling all kinds of emotion. And, you know, my day typically starts with coffee and social media. Okay. And, you know, I was reading all these headlines. I would finish my coffee and then I'd go paint. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a lot of inspiration one way or the other, right? Yeah, so I mean, all of that, you know, these abstract paintings that I were painting faces started to emerge mm. and they were really sort of distraught, you know, wide-eyed, mouth agape kind of. And so I started outlining these these faces mm. and, and titling them news headlines, like of the articles that I was, was reading, which were all related to Trump and in some way, shape or form. And that's what I did for, you know, a hundred days. And I amassed, you know, 172 paintings. And again, on social media, someone at GSDNM, the creative director there saw some work and offered me my first solo show during South by Southwest. Yeah. This is probably four years ago and I haven't stopped since. So, you know, been, been regularly exhibiting and yeah really leaning into to that as a, as a career. Wow. So that's something that really opened up that you weren't expecting. It sounds like you, it just was an opportunity that emerged. You kind of leaned into it as you found your way into it. And now it's something that you're, you're doing regularly. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm half, half of one, one foot is still, you know, in the ad world and the other foot is in the art world. And there's, there's, I mean, there's certainly some differences there, but, you know, even if I were to like go all the way back, you know, to childhood, like I was very much an artist and it wasn't until I got into college that 
I started using my brain a little bit more and got into writing and fell into copywriting. But art, from a visual standpoint, not using words to communicate and really just kind of pushing paint around was very therapeutic and got me using a different side of, of my brain. And the other thing I realized where, you know, like if a lot of my work, because I do paintings and I do sculpture work, but some of the sculpture work in a lot of ways could be an ad, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it looks like, you know, I could go hire somebody like, Oh, I have, I'm a copywriter and me and my director to come up with this idea to do a bag of, of AR 15 shells and a clear backpack. Right. You know, and you photograph that and that would be a poster for, for some anti gun ad, Yes. you know, instead it's like, I get to, I get to build these things and I don't have a client telling me, you know, that they don't like it or, you know, what if it's bubble gum instead of bullets or, Right. You know, whatever. So yeah, in some ways I, I fell into it, but in other ways, I think a lot of what I've done after I shut down my agency, which was focusing more on the side hustles. <clears throat> Cause I thought, you know, when I had 86, I would say, you know, 90% was client work, 10% was agency work. And I thought, man, if I could reverse this, and do 90% like agency, you know, self-promotion side hustle stuff and 10%, you know, service work yeah. to pay for all this. Like I like that ratio better. And so for the last 15 years, that's what I've been working towards, you know? So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now is, is, you know, how to make a living making art and, and being sort of a Robin Hood, if you will. That's really cool. That's really inspirational to me. You know, as I've started doing this podcast, I think this is the 46th episode that we've recorded so far. And you could say either, John, you've just started, or you could say, wow, you've done 46 episodes, you know? And as I've, you know, podcasting is something that I never thought I'd do. But as I started doing it, I just, I leaned into it. I was like, it feels easy and enjoyable and people respond well to it. Like, I think this could be a thing. And so that's one of the things that I'm like at the beginning of figuring out is, okay, because I, I work with a variety of different companies and then I also do the podcast and I'm personally thinking, how can I get to the point where I'm almost solely doing the podcast or content around yeah. the podcast? What What is your advice for people who are trying to figure that out? You know, it might take 15 years. Maybe you, you know, hit something and you're able to do it more more early but what's your advice to help make that happen? It's funny because the advice that I would probably give is the advice that I haven't fully taken. <laughs> Isn't that an analogy for life? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we're good at giving advice, but you've really got to lean into it 100%. You know, I think a lot of the success stories that you hear, you know, like on Shark Tank or, you know, whatever, is, is like people are you know, on their last dime when they finally had success, like they put their mortgage on the line, like they just went for it, you know, and there was no option B, you know, there was no plan B kind of thing. And, and I've never quite done that, you know, or when I have done that, to be quite honest, like when I shut down my agency, there were some businesses that I started where, 
you know, I was just dumb. I think advertising gives you this, this sort of false sense of, of confidence. Like you go, man, I came up with the name for that brand, the logo, the packaging, the entire marketing plan. And I turned you into a $5 million company. What? And you paid me like whatever, $50,000, you know? And so it's like, fuck that. I'm going to create an energy drink and I'm going to make $5 million, you know? And so I want to get into the IP and the product game. Yeah. But you quickly go, how do I source liquid? (laughs) What's the supply chain? (laughs) Yeah. All that stuff. You go like, oh man, there's so much more that goes into the, the product side of things that, you know, and so I was like, you know, I created this like mod, the sustainable modular coffee table and got really excited about it and met with the furniture company. And it was the first idea I pitched and they were like, yeah, we want to include this in the catalog. And we're going to give you a 10% licensing deal. And you have to create all these prototypes and they're each $6,000 and like, Oh, you want to have this like cantilevered ledge that's going to require a steel bar and that steel bar is going to add to the weight and that's going to add to the, and it's just like, I'm burning through cash, you know, learning all these things. And so it's like, man, I'm a hundred percent doing what I want to do. And then it's like, Oh crap, I'm out of money. Now I got to go back to the well and do something that I'm not really happy doing. Right. But I know that I'll just do that for a short term and then I'll come back. And so it's, it's always, you know, the bar is always sliding. Like you're, you're, and, and what I'm, the advice that I've also gotten was, was like, man, you just got to go for it. You can't have one foot in this thing and one foot in that too. thing. <laughs> yeah. And I've never done that, you know, and it's probably why I'm, 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 I'm still kind of in this, this situation, but you know, there's definitely some good things, you know, like personally speaking for me, like, you know, in, in the advertising world. But the other thing too, is just like, (coughs) you know, if you're passionate about it, you know, and you have those ideas that aren't going away, you know, like you can, everybody gets excited about ideas and then they kind of just, go away and you forget about them. But those ideas that you're like, no, this is cool. I like doing this and you will figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. I think, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, of course. And I think something that we all figured out about ourselves during COVID, a lot of people lost their means, you know, had to figure out how to pay the bills, right? How to get the groceries. And we realized that we are capable of much more because we had to. And my Mm. guess is that probably the reason why you've never leaned in 100%, why you haven't just completely gone for it, is because you had the option not to, right? And the people who, man, you're on your last time, I have to do this. I've been in maybe not that extreme of a situation, but I've been in some situations where a little dire and I did more in those moments than I ever thought I could because I didn't have a choice not to. I remember one example real quick is I, I, I worked in at Starbucks all the way through college. And I remember applying and saying, well, I'm definitely not going to work the morning shift because I can't be at work at 4.30 in the morning. That's when that's not when you're waking up. That's when you have to be there. And of course, I got scheduled for the morning shift. And guess what? I didn't have a problem showing up because I didn't have a choice. <laughs> right, right. And when you don't have a choice, things are a lot easier 
than when it's like, should I do this super hard, challenging, stressful, overwhelming thing, or should I not? <laughs> yeah. I think a good question to ask yourself or anybody in this situation is like, what's at stake? Hmm. You know, like what is the, what's the trade off? You know, is getting up at four thirty worth, it, you know, maybe not in the Starbucks case, but like if your dream requires you to get up at four thirty, or if you know that that Starbucks job is going to give you enough money to give you enough runway to do what you really want to do. And it's a short thing. Like yeah. is that is that worth it? You know, is that small temporary discomfort worth the, you know, um, the, the important stuff. I love that. What's at stake. I think that's going to give our audience a good idea of how to evaluate. Do I chase this dream? Do I go after this thing I've been thinking about that I haven't been able to stop thinking about? Mm. Well, this is the end of the podcast episode. I so appreciate you having us. I know we went fast, man. This is such a good conversation. I was looking at the clock. I was like, Holy moly. we, we got to do a round two. But before I let you go this time, anything that you'd like to share, where can people find your your artwork? Where can people see your shows? Anything else you'd like to share? Well, you can go to my website, which is chadray.com, R-E-A. And that is mostly my art stuff, you know, but again, then sort of what I was saying, not fully, fully being 100%. If you go down to the footer, you'll see a bunch of links to other things that I do, whether it's, you know, bad ad work or I do voiceover work, you know, as well. And yeah, I'll just say that I recently moved from Austin to Lockhart, Texas, which is, you know, about 30 miles of Austin, Southeast known for its barbecue. Nice. And I'm building a, a creative retreat here that people can come and visit and, you know, take classes and, It'd be great if anybody's interested in coming here and, and learning and being their most creative self, you know, would, would um, keep in touch. Absolutely. Well, we'd gladly promote that and get some folks out there. So, well, thank you so much, Chad Ray. I've learned a lot. I know the audience has learned a lot from this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today on the DLC Drop Podcast. Hey, thanks. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.